Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to two scriptures, Philippians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can hold both of those spots. And as you're turning there, uh, this series, I'm, I'm going to take four weeks to really nail this down. And so today I'm really going to create a, an umbrella, for lack of a better term, for the rest of the entire message where I'm going to give you some really good tools to really win the battle of the mind. Because regardless if you realize it or not, there is a war for your mind. Like, like there is a legit battle for your mind, for your thoughts, for how you live, for how you function, for how you see things. If you don't believe me, in this 2 Corinthians chapter 4 scripture, I'm going to read it to you real quick. It says in verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, who is Satan, the God of this world has blinded their minds, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Which means Satan has a very distinct plan to blind the minds of unbelievers and to attack and darken the minds of believers. There is a battle for your mind. John Osteen, Joel Osteen's dad used to say, you can have heaven in your heart but have hell in your mind. You can have heaven in your heart and have hell in your mind. The reason so many believers, I think, stop their journey with Jesus is because they think that once they get saved, they receive heaven in the heart, they'll also get heaven in their mind. That's not true. You can literally be, be walking towards heaven, have peace in your heart, but have hell going on in your mind because the Bible tells us you must renew your mind. When you get saved, your spirit is renewed, but your mind is the same, and the enemy is going to attack you at the place of your mind, because as a man thinketh, the King James says, so is he. So the enemy knows he may not be able to attack your eternity, or your spirit, or your soul, but he can make your life literally a living hell in your mind until you get to heaven. It's a battle that we all face and I, I would think anxiety is that conflict, this conflict between this hope, this love, this heaven in my heart, but this hell in my mind, this conflict is what we call anxiety. And I think most of us in this room can admit that if there is a battle for our minds, we are losing the battle. More than any point in history, I believe we could say we are losing the battle for our thought life and for our minds. You can look at statistics. America, the wealthiest nation on earth with greater opportunities and liberties and freedoms, is at the chart for every single mental illness, anxiety, stress, depression on every list of all countries in the world. In the book, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor, secular book, he was a student at Harvard, became a GA at Harvard. He started doing his research on happiness, and he thought that at Harvard, you have these, this place that is most of these young people's dreams come true. They'd worked their rear ends off for years in high school, hoping to get into Harvard. Get to Harvard. They're at the top of everything, the top of education, the top of elite social structures. They're at the top of everything, but yet their anxiety and depression rates were higher than everywhere else in America. Not only were they higher, they were higher than what they found in third world countries where little kids and young adults and adults didn't know if they were going to be able to eat that night or not. So we're all looking for happiness, but it seems like nobody's found it. Stats tell us one out of four people in America will have a mental health or mental issue this year alone. That means if you look around this room, there's people in this room that are dealing with anxiety, stress, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. We can keep going down the list, down the list, down the list. Yet we're in the, the healthiest, richest country in the world. 
Maybe our pursuit of happiness has led us to a place of illness. Maybe we're so caught up in what's over the horizon, we've lost sight of the life that's here with us right now. We are losing the battle. And we're losing the battle at such a high rate that it's ridiculous. That our kids, our students, their rates are even higher than adults. That the kids in fifth and sixth grade, their anxiety levels are higher than that than CEOs of companies. Can you imagine a 12-year-old kid carrying the same anxiety and mental anguish as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company? And we wonder why kids act up. They act up because they can't handle the mental battle that's raging in their minds. We're losing the battle. And I believe anxiety is this. Anxiety is when you lose control of your thought life. Anxiety is when you lose control of your thought life, meaning you no longer have the ability to control how you process your thoughts. And when you lose control, you become anxious and frustrated and nervous and afraid and scared. And there's lots of reasons for that. It could be chemical imbalance. It could be genetics. It could be life. It could be change. But it all comes down to I don't believe God created us to live lives with heaven in our heart in hell in our minds. Just, just, I just don't feel like God says, I want you to come to heaven, but I want you to experience hell on earth until you get here. I, I don't believe God has that character and that nature and that desire for us. And the, the easiest way I can explain, and I'm going to use this throughout this month to explain this, how many do you remember the game Tetris? Raise your hand. All of you, because you probably play it during church. <laughs> probably play it while you're on the clock at work. Tetris. So Tetris starts out simple, starts out with one or two shapes and they slowly come down and you processed where you want to put that shape at. But as it keeps going on, it starts adding more shapes and it starts speeding up. And once it starts speeding up, you start panicking a little bit more because you can't process what's coming down and what's next or what's over the horizon or what shape is coming up next. And what happens is as it gets faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and you start panicking, all of a sudden it fills up and you can't handle anymore and it says game over. In the same way, anxiety is when you slowly, when you're younger, you can process thoughts and put them in the right place. But then as life starts getting faster and faster, it starts getting more difficult to process those thoughts and those thoughts start stockpiling upon each other until it gets faster and faster and faster and you start panicking until you have an overload or we call an anxiety attack or depression. And the reason for that is we either over-focus on particular shapes or, or levels of the game or we have not yet learned how to process life correctly. And I do not believe God wants it to be game over for anybody. If you would, stand to your feet with me as we read Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. It says it this way, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. That, that's almost a command. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God. Everybody say peace. The peace, not anxiety, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is writing this from prison, awaiting a death sentence. It's not like he's writing this from heaven saying, hey guys, it's good up here, just deal with what you're dealing with till you get here. No, he, he's writing it from the middle of anxiety and trying to encourage the church Listen, I've been to hell and back. 
you have nothing to worry about. He's saying, I, I've lived it. And, and later on he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I've learned when I have little, that I don't have to worry about it. When I have a lot, I don't have to worry about it because my God has a peace that surpasses my understanding. See, God has called you to freedom, not anxiety. God has called you to worship, not worry. That's what this scripture, to worship, to think about God and the things of God rather than the things that you're worried about. He has called you. I believe it is God's will for every single believer to have a sound, free, and peace-filled mind. Any other mind is an attack by the enemy that you are losing at this time because God's will for you is to have a sound mind that is at peace even in the middle of a first century prison. In the middle of a first century prison, you can have a peace that surpasses your situations. Even in 2019 in America, I believe it's God's will for your mind to be strong, to be faith-filled, to be renewed by his word, to be reset by his Sabbath, to be at rest, to be at peace, and to conquer every single thought the enemy throws your way. You should kick it back out because it does not belong in a mind that is the mind of God. Father, we love you. And we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you are a God who wants what's best for your people. And Father, I thank you that we have heaven in our hearts right now. Every single one of us that call on the name of Jesus, that are sanctified and saved and delivered and redeemed. And Father, right now, I pray in these next few moments, these next few weeks, you allow for the heaven that's in our heart to be transferred to in our minds so our minds can be at peace, be free, and be love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled, and have heaven resting in every single thought we have. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. No doubt about it, there's a battle for our minds. We are losing that battle, and God said victory is when your mind is sound and it is free. You say, well, how do you know that? Because Jesus was very clear, especially in Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read it to you. He was very clear that it was God's responsibility to take care of you. It's your job to trust him. It's God's responsibility to take care of you. It's your job to trust him that he will do what he said he would do. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Again, the same word, sounds like a commandment again. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them all. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. That's about as clear as it gets. Jesus says, don't be anxious. I love you. I've got you. Don't be anxious about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. Look at the creation. Look at it. It's beautiful. It takes care of itself because I take care of it. If I take care of the grass, if I take care of the birds, I'll take care of you. He says, just seek first my kingdom, meaning pay attention to me and pay attention to my reign and my authority and my ability, and I'll take care of every single thing. What that means is everything you need is in God's kingdom. Everything you need is inside God's kingdom. 
And if you realize the fact that God is king and you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and he takes care of everything in his kingdom, there's no need to worry about tomorrow. Yet we spend a lot of time worrying about tomorrow. And I believe one of the main reasons we have such high anxiety in our culture is due to social media. And I would say anti-social media. Because it creates an anti-social life. It, it takes us away from things that bring health and life rather than bringing us towards things that help health and life. The two things most, most psychologists believe we need for pure mental freedom and health is two things. One is truth and one is community. Touch your neighbor say truth. Now touch your other neighbor say community. Truth and community. Meaning you have to realize, have a correct perspective of what you're facing or what you're going through. But you also need people around you that will support you and encourage you through those moments. Two things, truth and community. Social media does not provide either one of those. It actually provides the opposite. It provides fake news or false truths. You don't believe me? That's not just a President Trump thing. That's a, you go on social media, so-and-so will tell you they're happy. They're not a happy person. They just play one on Facebook. People lie on Facebook. They're trying to present an image to the world that's not true. And you're anxious because you feel like your life doesn't match up with their life. Their life doesn't match up with their life. It's, it's not truth. And then your friends on Facebook aren't real friends. They're people that clicked yes to an imaginary button on a computer. And those imaginary friends that will not, here's how you define a true friend. Will they show up at two o'clock in your morning to help you when you're going through a problem? I believe most people only have four to six of those people in their lives. So go through your friends list. How many of those people do you think if you put on your timeline, hey, something happened in my house, I need somebody to come help us through this, and it's 2.30 in the morning. How many of them will show up? If they do show up, they're going to have a phone recording what drama you're going through so they can get their likes up. <laughs> but I guarantee you, you spend more time with your Facebook friends looking at a screen than you do the friends that are six, four to six people that will be there for you when you need them. So then when you go through something, you're putting in on social media and there's no empathy, no help, when the people that would help you, you've, you've kind of ignored for the past six months to a year. And so it's no wonder we're in the predicament we're in because we've bought into the lie. I believe the enemy is the only person that can create something called social media that removes us from actual, true, authentic community. No wonder our kids are so anxious. They look at the highlight reels of everybody else's lives. You know, used to, you'd have to call somebody and ask them to go do something. You wouldn't know if other kids were doing it. Now, here, here's, this is a legit diagnosis. Young teenage girls are at a higher rate. We, there's actually statistics on the rate of anxiety and depression in teenagers has increased dramatically in the last 10 years at the exact same rate of the usage of social media. And the girls are outpacing the young guys tenfold. And one of the reasons, it's called F-O-B-L-O, fear of being left out. They see all their friends going to the, the movies together, see all their friends doing this together, and they're at home, stuck looking at a stupid screen, living their life on the outside looking in. We have adults doing the same thing, and what it's done is created this isolation of people away from the help they need, the relationships they need, and the truth they need. All their information comes through a little screen that's not truth. It may be facts, but it's not truth, and it's not applied truth to their lives. And they sit there with people they think are their true friends, but in reality, if they saw them in real life, they wouldn't even talk to them. I mean, this is real life. And so their kids are losing the battle of their minds because they have no one. I remember this, 
They, they have no one they can sit to and talk to face to face where they can learn to understand each other's thoughts, their emotions. They can, they can share what they're going through. They, they don't have that place anymore because they try to get that through a digital screen. I've sat down with young kids in my family, sat down with them for coffee to do a Bible devotional. They, one of them, not one time looked at me in my eyes. Not one time did they, she look up and look at me in my eyes. She didn't know how. And when there's a face-to-face contact with another human being, it brings peace to our souls that you can't get any other place. And so today, what I really want to show you is four quick things that if you're feeling anxious that you need to think about and do. And then next week, we're going to really dig into tools and apply these to our lives. And number one is this. When you're feeling anxious, do not believe every single thing you think. When you are feeling anxious, you're you're nervous, you're worried, you're frustrated, you're feeling depressed, do not believe every single thing you think. How did Satan get into Judas before Judas betrayed Jesus and before Judas hung himself or committed suicide? It says in the scripture, he suggested, the enemy suggested to Judas And then it progressed from him suggesting a thought or suggesting something to Judas to then placing a thought in Judas that he should betray Jesus. So when you're having anxiety and you're frustrated, guess who's going to show up and start putting suggestions in your mind? Satan. Especially when you're weak in your mind. He's going to show up and realize there's a weakened spot in the walls of their life, I'm going to make a few suggestions to see if I can get myself in there. That way I know if that's what's going to happen, when I'm feeling anxious, I need to question every single thought I have. I need to learn to filter it in a way, because Proverbs 28, 6 says this, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. We get wisdom from a multitude of counselors. I don't get wisdom by just thinking through things myself. My mind will lie to me. Proverbs 14, 12, and 13 says, there's a way that seems right to man. It it seems right, but in its end, its way is death. Here's a couple of scriptures just what the, the word of God says about our minds. And this is why you need to question your thought life. In Deuteronomy 28, it talks about a confused mind. In Job 17, it talks about an anxious or closed mind. In Ecclesiastes, it talks about an evil or restless mind. In Leviticus and Isaiah, it talks about a rash or deluded mind. In 2 Kings chapter 6, a troubled mind. In 1 Timothy 6, a depraved mind. In Romans 8, 7, a sinful mind. In 2 Corinthians 3, a dull mind. You already got that one down. So no, those of you that didn't laugh, it's because. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, a blinded mind. In 2 Timothy 3, 8, a corrupt mind. That's just a few. So if that's what the Bible is saying about our minds, Don't you think that many times our thoughts are wrong? And don't you think our thoughts would be more wrong when we're put under stress and burden and worry and anxiety? I would think that when I'm I'm tired or I'm burdened, my mind is less strong than it would be when I'm free. And so when I'm anxious, I better not believe every thought I have. Because every thought will not be a God thought. Most people believe we have 60,000 thoughts a day. 60,000. How many of those do you think are negative? Out of 60,000 thoughts per day, on average in America, 48,000 of them are negative. 48,000. That means 12,000 are positive. And it's also heard, I've read this many times, especially with kids, that for every negative word spoken over somebody, they need seven positive words to reinforce that positivity. 
So it looks like we're tracking the wrong direction in our thought life. I should have seven times more positive thoughts than I do negative thoughts. But we have 48,000 negative thoughts and 12,000 positive. No wonder we're anxious. If I'm thinking negatively about myself, my image, my identity in Christ, I'm thinking negatively about my tomorrow, my future, my plans, my hopes, my dreams, my marriage, my kids, my job, my money, my finances. No wonder we're going crazy. We think crazy, therefore we're crazy. Like we're processing everything incorrectly. And this is another definition of anxiety. Anxiety, first of all, has no substance. When you think about your anxious thoughts, it's not usually something that's actually going on at the moment. It's you thinking about all the possibilities that may happen that bring anxiety. And so in fact, anxiety really doesn't have a substance Yet faith has substance, but we don't think faith-filled thoughts. Because anxiety is literally imagining the future without the possibility of God. I mean, anxiety, I'm thinking about all these crazy possibilities that could happen. You know, my kid could be in a car wreck. You know, Toy and RJ on a plane. The plane could crash. This could happen. That could happen. What if this happened? What if that happened? What if, what? and you start thinking through all these possibilities. But the problem is, you thought through all these possibilities without God. Like not in one of those scenarios that I say, well, what if God showed up? What if God protected them? What if God was true to his word? What if God's promises are yes and amen to me? What if God is a healing God? What if God is a providing God? What if God does come through? See, anxiety is when you imagine a future as yourself as God and God looking from the outside in. But faith is when I look at the future and I realize God is already there. God is already working out the details. God has went before me and I'm trusting the fact that he's going to work it all out for my good. Like, like I've lived this. Uh, when Toya was sick, this is the Super Bowl week, 2015. Crazy week. Toya basically had stroke-like symptoms. She was on the floor. I was in Cobbert Heights where there is no cell service. So the kids are trying to call me. Mom can't talk. Mom can't walk. She fell down on the floor. They get a hold of Tisha and Ryan Albert. They go over there and pick her up, take her to the hospital. And so this whole week is trying to figure out why Toya can't talk, why she can't walk. She's crying. She's frustrated because she, she can think clearly, but she can't communicate at all. And this whole week is just, it's hell. It's heaven in my heart, hell in my mind and my life. I'm at the hospital for a couple of days. Sunday night, I go home just to get the kids in bed, try to get them back on a routine. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I thought, I'm going to get the kids in bed. I'm going to go down, just turn on the TV and just veg out. And I'm trying to take the kids in. They start saying, Daddy, what if mommy dies? Dad, what if mom never walks again? What if mom never talks again? And I remember just being frustrated because I have my own concerns but yeah, my kids are adding all these other concerns to my mind. I just need a moment to rest. It's like that Tetris board is, is getting too busy. I just need to push pause for a second and rest. And the kids, what if mommy dies? What if this happens? And I said, stop, just stop. I said, I don't want to be uncompassionate, but what if God heals her? What if God touches her lips and she talks again? What if God is our God and he's a redeeming God? What if he's a delivering God? What if he's a providing God? What if, he's a, what if God is who he says he is? See, anxiety tries to get you to remove all those scenarios and think about all the enemy scenarios. Faith brings in God and says, listen, you have no reason to be anxious because God is part of your life. What thoughts? Are you thinking that you need to be questioning? Number two, when you're anxious, when you're anxious, don't believe every feeling you have. Don't believe every feeling you have. Your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings are compelling, very, very compelling. They, they try to move you in a certain direction or make you react in a certain way but very rarely are your feelings reliable. So they're compelling, they're just not very reliable. And we start living our life when we're anxious, you'll have feelings of, of sadness, feelings of anger, and they're compelling, but they're not actually reliable. Emotions can be indicators of something, 
but they shouldn't give us direction. There's actually a whole study, if you study any medical stuff or, or psychology stuff, that's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And what they've learned is your thoughts can dictate your feelings, your thoughts can determine your feelings, or your feelings can determine your thoughts. So if I'm winning the battle of my mind, and my mind is strong and faith-filled, it'll actually produce positive feelings and emotions. But if I'm weak in my mind and I start feeling down and worried and concerned and, and nervous and scared, my emotions will start actually determining my thought life in the same way. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, they've learned that if they can sit down with a person over a matter of time and get them to look at other thoughts that are empirical or evidence of other ways of thinking, it'll actually change their emotions and feelings. But you can never change the way you think if you're by yourself behind a computer screen. Here's, here's some cognitive distortions that these are diagnoses. One is emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning refers to acceptance of one's emotions as fact. Therefore, somebody may say, I feel depressed, therefore my marriage isn't working. Catastrophizing, focusing on the worst possible scenario or outcome instead of all the opportunities around you. Overgeneralization, meaning looking at one instance or one example and thinking that's an overall pattern, meaning I, I, I failed on one test, therefore I'm a failure. I, I went through one divorce, maybe I'm just not lovable. And you overgeneralize one thing as becoming a pattern for your entire life. All or nothing or polarized thinking, thinking in only black or white terms, leaving no area for grace nor different facts. Mind reading, <laughs> the inaccurate belief that we know what another person is thinking. Meaning, well, they don't like me. Or, or they're nice to me up front, but when they leave, they leave from me, they don't really talk good things about me. Or, or they'll never accept me. Or, or they don't really want me there. And you start thinking you know what other people think and living your life in somebody else's head. You may, you may have an understanding, maybe what they think, but you don't know what they think about you. And when you sit on the other side of a computer screen and you don't have a face-to-face -face conversation, you'll always think you're reading somebody else's mind. Negative filtering, meaning I focus on all the negative things and exclude anything positive, and always being right is a diagnosis. Perfectionists and those struggling with imposter syndrome will recognize this. It is the belief that we must always be right, correct, or accurate because your identity is in you being right. So these may be emotions that you have that are tides and currents in your life that are determining how you think. And if you know anything about boating or shipping, there's tides and currents everywhere. But a good captain of a good ship doesn't let the tides or currents determine where the ship goes. The captain has a, a big steering column. He has a motor or a sail, and he'll use the rudder to navigate through the currents, through the tides. Sometimes he'll actually use the currents or tides to get him somewhere faster, but he doesn't let the currents or tides dictate or determine where he goes. Some of you, you have these rip currents and tides of emotions in your life, and you just turn the motor off to your brain and letting the tides and currents take you wherever you want to go in life. No wonder your life is in shambles. You're just letting your emotions take you wherever which way they want to go. You're depressed because you're depressed. You're angry at everybody because something happened 45 years ago. You're letting that current take you into your next season. Some point you have to realize there's tides and currents in my life that are trying to shift me, but I have the ability to navigate my emotions and go the direction God has called me to go. When you're anxious, do not believe every feeling you have. Number three, when you're anxious, when you're anxious, don't run away from your fears, overcome them. When you're anxious, do not run away from your fears, overcome them. We live in a day and age in a great book called The Coddling of the American Mind. He has three untruths of culture that he believes are being taught unintentionally in college campuses and high schools all over America. And one of them is this, that which doesn't kill me makes me weaker. 
you know, I grew up, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Like, you know how many times I was in a sporting, a football or baseball or basketball, I'm hurt. My dad's, get out there, boy, you ain't hurt. Like, I hit, like my, my dad, I broke my wrist playing basketball one day in my backyard. I go inside, my bone is like sticking out. I tell my dad, I said, I think I broke my arm. He said, I'll just sit down until my show was over on TV, boy. Like, what? If it doesn't kill me, it makes me weaker. What that does, it puts us in a safety mindset where anything that could cause pain or could cause failure or could cause harm, we stay far away from. And what happens, instead of becoming overcomers, we start becoming victims. Anything that hurts my feelings, did you know, you know emotional safety is a new term? It's only been around for like 15 years. Used to damage or trauma was only physical. In the last 20 years, we've added emotional trauma, psychological trauma, social trauma, all these other traumas. What we're doing is we're pushing people farther and farther back into being a victim for anything and everything. And what happens is fear builds up. They've actually researched this with peanut allergies, where peanut allergies from the mid-90s to 2008 have went from 3%, like 3% to almost 20-something percent of kids have peanut allergies. And what they learned is that by promoting safety from peanuts, don't touch the peanuts, they'll kill you. But I love peanut butter. Like in doing that, we've isolated ourselves from peanuts, now more kids have peanut allergies. One of the research studies, they did this. They had the same number of kids, all of them were prone to peanut allergies. Half of them, they had them have some peanut-type food three times a week for a certain amount of period of time. The other ones, they didn't let them have any peanut stuff. At the end of the study, the kids that were exposed to peanuts had 3% allergies or allergens to peanuts. The kids that were not exposed were at 17%. And the scientific term for this is called hygiene hypothesis. What it means is the wealthier and the cleaner a country gets, the more allergies they actually end up getting. Because mommy and daddy start helicoptering over their kids, trying to make sure their kids are safe, and they're not exposed to things that they need to get exposed to because as you're exposed to things, you overcome them. As you overcome them, you move on from them. A vaccine is exposure. Like if you go to get a flu shot, you're actually getting exposed to the flu. If you get a measles shot or, or chicken pox, you're getting exposed to it. And what we've done is instead of being vaccinated to fear, we just keep people locked up in rooms. And so what happens with anxiety is since our kids have never had to overcome anything. Like can you imagine our kids today being part of World War II or Vietnam? Like, they would, they would be shot dead. They'd be on Facebook, like, today's a pretty bad day. Like, like look where I'm at. <laughs> like, they don't have the ability. Why do they not have the ability? Because mommy and daddy have told them the world is a scary place. You need to make sure you stay safe. And what happens is once they hit a moment that's difficult, a moment that there's fear involved, a moment where there's pain involved, Instead of overcoming it, they retreat from it. And then the next time they hit something similar, that, that thing may not be big, but it feels bigger because last time it was very scary and they didn't overcome it, so they back up again. And the more time you, you see something or you feel something and you retreat from it, the bigger and bigger and bigger it gets. But what happens is if you learn that you're an overcomer and when you're faced with something in front of you, no matter how dangerous it is, if you overcome it, the next time you see something similar, it gets smaller instead of bigger. Like when you realize we are called to be overcomers. We're called to overcome fear. We're called to overcome the world. We're called to overcome. But it seems like as, as the world progresses, we just back up farther and farther, scared of everything and anything. And here's the deal. Your fears will never go away on their own. You have to go through them. Get this, your fears will never go away on their own. You have to go through them. It may be scary for a moment, but you know what's on the other side of your fear? 
victory. You know what's on the other side of your fear? Freedom. If you're afraid of something, you're never going to experience freedom while you're in fear. And if you keep being worried about what's on the other side, you have to come to a place where I realize God has something for the, on the other side of my fears. I must walk through it. We call that courage. We call that faith. And I believe everyone in this room is called to overcome their fears. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of self-control or sound mind. Meaning God has called you to overcome, not retreat. And number four, when you're anxious, don't run away from community, run towards community. Listen, when you're anxious, don't run away from people, run towards people. When you're anxious, don't run away from people that care about you, run towards them. The problem is, when we are anxious, our tendency is to retreat rather than to move forward. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Meaning, no matter who it is, when you start feeling anxious or stressed or depressed, we end up retreating into isolation. And I believe isolation has become the primary drug of choice of good old Americans. If I'm having a bad day, I just want to retreat back to my room. And what happens is now we have something to occupy our retreating time, so we stay on Facebook, and all it does is encourage us to stay there longer. And just like any other drug, isolation can become addictive. Because the longer you're in there, the longer you start believing your own thoughts. And then you start adding your fears and your emotions, then you stay locked up in this box that's black, it's dark, and it's called depression. When you don't deal with anxiety and stress and it leads you to isolation, that is medically diagnosed depression. When you're retreating from the solution because you think the solution is your problem. Sean Acor says this, in the midst of challenges and stress, some people choose to hunker down and retreat within themselves. But the most successful people take the exact opposite approach. Instead of turning inward, they actually hold tighter to their social support. Not only are these people happier, but they are more productive, engaged, energetic, and resilient. Because they realize, I cannot overcome this alone. Actually, there's four chemicals in your brain or hormones in your brain. They call the happy quartet. Not a, not a barbershop quartet, the happy quartet. There's no such thing as a happy barbershop quartet. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and ephedrine, or not ephedrine, that's my drugs I take for allergies. Endorphins. So dopamine elevates your feeling of good and motivation. Oxytocin is your bonding. That's when a mother breastfeeds her baby, it builds oxytocin in both of them, it bonds them together. And actually there's studies that cuddling, husband and wife actually bonds them together, it produces oxytocin in them. Serotonin, meaning you feel important or accomplished. And endorphins helps you overcome stress. You know what they found? When you're connected with other people in positive face-to-face -face relationships, all four of those increase. And actually, other studies, they've realized if you don't have a close network of encouraging, positive relationships, it makes your blood pressure 30 points higher on average. And when you serve other people, when you're connected to other people, it actually increases all four of those. There's, there, I'm telling you, if, you have an, if you're having a bad day, find somebody and serve them it will produce these, these hormones in you and change your day. But the problem is when you start feeling bad, you start thinking, somebody should serve me. But in reality, if you get outside your box, say, I'm having a really bad day, but can I buy your lunch? You will feel better immediately. Because the solution many times to your anxiety is connection with other people. Why do you do groups here at chapel? Because I know this, this is secular research and all it's doing is saying what God has been saying for 4,000 years. 
that you need other people to experience freedom in your life. I know this years ago, 2009, I was going through a crazy time with the church we're on staff at. I mean, this crazy, 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 crazy. And I found myself every night I'd come home. Like the spiritual warfare was so thick. I'd come home, the kids were young. I'd just go back to my room and I'd read a book. And Toy started sharing with some of our good friends. And he's a vice president of a company. And he said, let's do lunch. We had lunch. He says, I think you're depressed. I was like, hey, why are you judging me, bro? Like, you ain't. And he was like, what do you do when you come home? I said, what? Well, I think I go to my room. And he said, when do you come out of your room? I said, I stay there till bedtime. And he said, you're depressed. He said, I have a good counselor I want you to see. So I started hanging out with this guy, and then I started seeing the counselor. And what they helped me do is I realized I'd been isolating myself from the things that brought me joy in life. My kids, my wife. I was so focused on this one particular thing that it was choking out all the joy in my life. And that's what isolation does. Isolation chokes you out. And I got to this counselor and I said, here's what's going on. And like the first session was terrible. She's like, this is like the worst case of church politics and corruption I've ever seen. I'm like, is that the end of the session? Like, that doesn't help me. And she says, but look at this. And she helped me see it from a different angle. See, one of the reasons I believe counselors are important is because we're not out front, open, and transparent with people we don't pay. If I'm going to pay somebody, I'm going to get my money's worth. But you have people in this room that care for you just as much, if not more, than a counselor. They can help you see your situation differently than you're seeing it right now. They can help you process what you're going through, and they can help you generate these hormones and chemicals in your body so that way you can be free. There, there's an old story this guy in World War II, he was so scared of the pro-Nazi Germans. He locked himself up in his sister's barn. There's like a little kitchenette or something in there. He was there for 32 years. 32 years. He said he could hear the people in the village having a good time. He could, he could look down in the valley and see them celebrating. But he was so scared to come out of his hiding. He didn't come out for 32 years. His sister bought a bulk supply of something. They had put it up in the top of this barn and they found him there. He said, I'm so happy they found me. If they wouldn't have found me, I would have been up there forever. Some of you have let one bad experience, one wrong thought, one strong feeling keep you locked up in isolation, looking around you and seeing people enjoying life, seeing people celebrate the good things in life, seeing them have a good time with their family, their friends, and you're on the outside looking in because you're so afraid to step out of isolation into relationship. For some of you, that's people in this church, some of that's family, that's friends, some of you, that's a counselor. I, actually, this is crazy. I have my appointment with my counselor tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. You know what I do? I go up there, I sit down in his little chair. It's not like the movies where you lay on a couch. I sit on the chair. He said, what's going on? I said, my pastor, I'm broken, help me. Literally, that's my, I'm broken, help me process what I'm going through, help me think correctly, and we'll spend an hour helping me filter through my thoughts helping me correctly process my emotions so I can see things the way God sees them and see them in a way that's positive, not detrimental. And we all need people. Toya is one of those people for me. She helps me process my thoughts and my emotions in my heart. I have friends I'll call. They help me process. Everybody needs somebody. And when you're hurting, it's not the time to run away from it. It's the time to run towards it. So real quick, if you would do me a favor, I just want you to take this tag out of your worship guide. And if I can go ahead, the worship team come up and our altar team as well. Today is like big overview. And those four things, if you're dealing with something, is key. Don't believe every thought. Don't believe every emotion. You're going to have to overcome some fears. And don't run away from relationships, run towards them. And if you need, if you say, you know what, I'm in that place today, fill out a connect card or come down here, let them know that. We'll get you scheduled counseling. We'll, we'll have somebody call you and encourage you and love on you. But what I want you to do right now is I want you to take this out. And either right now during this next worship song or during this next week, I want you to write down 
the largest thought in your brain that occupies your anxious space or your strongest emotion or your greatest fear that is keeping you from controlling your thought life and experiencing the freedom and the peace that Philippians 4 says God has called you to. I want you to take it. I want you to write that on there. I'm going to write. I have two on mine. I'm going to write down. I'm going to put my Bible and we're going to use each and every week. I'm going to have you look at it every single week because we're going to use that as a personal application and example for you. At the end of the four weeks, we're going to use them all together to break free and to freedom. And so if you would, stand to your feet all this room. We're going to go back into one more song. I'm going to pray in just a second. And we're going to open the altars. These people are here to love on you, pray for you. If you're going through something, if you're feeling anxious, you got sickness in your body, you've got a big decision coming up, I'm here to encourage you, pray for you, maybe give you some wise counsel, give you a word from the Lord. If you need more than that, you say, you know what, I'm broken, I'm hurting, we can get you connected with that as well. Well, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Before we leave today, I just want to ask, if you're in this room, and you said, you know, you talked about heaven in your heart, but hell in your mind. I can tell you, Bobby, I have hell in my mind, but I don't know if I have heaven in my heart. Well, if you've been saved by Jesus' blood, by trusting in him as your personal Lord and Savior, you should have heaven on the inside of you. Jesus called the kingdom of heaven is on the inside of you. So even though you're going through some things, you can still experience God's presence. And if you're not experiencing that, you may not be saved. And it may be a day where you say, Jesus, I need you to come into my life because I need heaven in my heart so I can make it through this life into the next life. If that's you, I'm not going to have you come forward. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. That's you. I just want you to slip your hand up right where you are. Anybody in this room? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? After you raise your hand, you can put it down real quick. I'm going to pray, and if you'll do me a favor, if you raise your hand before you leave today, please stop by one of these altar workers or stop by the info center. Let them get your name and number so we can call and walk with you and encourage you and love on you, but also get a gift in your hand to help you start your journey with Jesus. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you are a good and amazing God, that you're powerful in every single way. And we thank you that you are a God of peace, not anxiety. In this room, Father, every single person in this room that has thoughts that are anxious, thoughts that are depressed, thoughts that are stressed out, feelings that are strong and take them away from help and joy and hope, fears that keep them isolated and locked away. I pray in the next few weeks and even that you start breaking down those thoughts, help them include you and your presence and your power and your provision in every single outcome they're looking at. Father, let them experience that peace that surpasses understanding. Let them experience freedom not just in their spirits and their hearts, but also in their minds as well. And so, Father, we thank you for those that raise their hand. I pray, Father, as they're acknowledging, they cannot do this on their own. They need you to save them, to deliver them, to help them be a new creation in you and to be set free with heaven residing within them. And, Father, I pray as they receive you that you start renewing their minds, renewing their lives, and changing everything about them. In Jesus' name, amen.